When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, the prophet of rage, and with me is the hype machine, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you doing this week? I'm very glad to hear it. I would like to apologize once again for Walker's defeat in Fat Bear Week. Grazer, however, is the one, the only person bear, I should I, say. I, I raised him from a cub, Mark. <laughs> Why'd you give him the we, same we name? Were, we were hyped up. Yeah, it, it, it's it, we're ready. We were there. The problem is, I'll tell you why. Then your your enthusiasm got the better of you. The reason why Walker got defeated by Grazer in Fat Bear Week was that Walker already started out as a chonkers boy, yeah. and during Fat Bear Week, during the period of, of fattening, got bigger, but not by the same extent as Grazer. So, and Grazer took the took the prize. We peaked too early. That was the problem. That's, like, yeah, yeah, it's 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 how I do in almost every Euro game. It's like, ooh, I can get easy money. Ooh, 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 these engines are crushing me. <laughs> Eurogame, is that what kids are calling it today? And <laughs> we're back. We're going to be talking about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter, and our topic, calling it a win. What is a win? What do we conceive of as a win? What are our preferred end states? But before we do all that, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus, where we talk about the game we reviewed last year. So exactly one year ago, Mark, we played... G.I. Joe, the deck building game. This is from Renegade Studios, and it's very much in the ilk of Ascension, where you have a sort of progressing line of cards that you can draft from. But in this particular one, it's totally cooperative. A mission will come up, and certain missions can be all joined in by the same teammate, or you'll have your own little side missions. Lots of interesting things. Tons of expansions came out for it. It's oh, yeah. Did we jump the shark? We are now with Transformers as well. No, 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 no. Transformers yet- is the only possibility of redemption. I never liked G.I. Joe deck building game. I never found that there were choices. I never felt that there was actually any control that I had over what was going on. I, f- I found it so thoroughly un- unengaging and mediocre. I loved it. Yeah, I know. I, you I've, I've yet to play the... the, the the Transformers, Transformers crossover one? Crossover yet. I do have it. They have, like, uh, games. Like you have the big base. You have ice missions. Tons of new content. They gotta have the ice missions. If you have any sort of, you know, member berries about G.I. Joe, this will hit all of them. Tons of different heroes. I have all... some of them. It's weird. I watch a lot of G.I. Joe. I don't have a lot of nostalgia for it, necessarily. But, yeah. I definitely do not have as much as for, for other IPs, but I did watch it as a child. Sure. My best friend in uh, grade school and in high school for a very long time, well, not by the time he went to high school, was under the impression that he was he was a real American hero because of G.I. Joe. He had to be informed that he was Canadian at some tender age, and it scarred him deeply. 
So, <laughs> Don't Deck Building Game, you've played it a number of times with some of the boys. Yes. Uh, and you've tried the first expansion, definitely. Yes, and the second. Oh, and, and the and second. They, they oh, okay. all very much love it. Oh, good, good, so. good. Yeah, I haven't played it since we reviewed it, and uh, I do not regret it in the slightest. That is G.I. Joe, the deck building game. And they, they Renegade Game did, has done a bunch of uh, deck building games at the same time. They did a, a straight-up Transformers one. They, they did. did a My Little Pony. Different design, though. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it's not just straight up, you yeah. know, chunk, chunk, cookie cutter. So they, they yeah, did. Yeah, Renegade Games is kind of like the new Cryptozoic. <laughs> a little bit. Well, they're going to be doing uh, HeroScape, so let's hope that uh, it turns out. Yeah, that's wild. Still no official word on whether it's going to be pre-painted. Yeah, no no big pictures. Just just talk now. Just talk. It's all just talk. Yeah, yeah. until I have it in my hand. So that's the game we played last year. That is your as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. Now on to the games we played last week. Under the category of Instagaris, I played Gnar. More Gnar, which we reviewed very recently. And as always, I say, if I'm inclined to pack, bring, teach, play a game that we just finished reviewing, which is to say knocking out several games often in quick succession, that indicates that the game definitely has staying power. And I was very, very happy to go back to Gnar. And let me tell you about my my special achievement in Gnar, Walker. And I've even gotten to the point where I included in the rules explanation. Given that Gnar is a very, very quick game, full of, of lots of tense timing decisions as a consequence and it is a race to 40 points arguably the worst score you can end your turn on is 39 i even now explain that to the game it's like you're ending on 39 is a little bit awkward i mean granted 39 is better than 38 but ending a, ending a turn on 39 is awkward because it's giving everyone else an extra turn for no particular reason and i think in roughly half the games of nar i play including the most recent one where i specifically said i end with on 39 this is such surgical precision. I think I deserve some kind of medal. If Nar were prices right, I would be the undefeated champion. It's miraculous. That's Nar by Thomas Dupont and Bombix. It is incredibly inexpensive, thoroughly crowd pleasing. I have yet to encounter anyone that that has any objections to it. If you, it, it is like a callback to the golden days of Euro fillers that were full of nice tense decisions, and it is lovely on the table. It's also on Board Game Arena. It's also on Board Game Arena, so give it a shot if you're at all inclined. That's Gnar. I got to show Mark a game we talked about last week, which is Trolls and Princesses. This is designed by Pim Thungborg and put out by Game Brewer. It is a fantastic-looking game. It is very... It really does a callback, and the theme is right on to history of what trolls do. Wow. The, the, the history of the mythology of what yes, trolls do. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Oh, yes. Let's be perfectly clear. They, they, there were not really trolls. There are people who believe in gnomes. There are people who believe in trolls. It's a whole thing. And you, and what you said at the end really hit home is that you you said, I don't mean to take take your line here, but you said you've had enough of trolls and princes or you do not need to play it again. And I, when I reflected about that, I, I sort of agree. There is not much that develops within a plane of trolls and princes. You pretty well see everything that it has to offer. There's not a ton of variation in, in ways to win, but still the overall experience I, I feel is pleasant. I think it'll be much better with uh, fewer players. And I just think because of the theming and the art and the theme, I think it's still a great sort of little gateway or sort of one-off type game. Oh, it's very delightful. And as far as 
hardcore consumers, and I'm not advocating this lifestyle, you know, hardcore consumers who cycle through lots of games on the reg, play them once or twice, and then never play them again, which is an unfortunate consequence of the hobby. I would more happily do that with something like Trolls and Princesses when it is, as you say, very thematically cohesive, not necessarily evocative in the gameplay mechanisms, but you're kidnapping humans to go work in your caves, you're bringing back princesses and shoving them in a den, you're swapping human babies with little troll changelings, all with delightful meeples and gorgeous illustration art. It's really, really charming in that sense. And the gameplay is not nothing. It's not the typical sort of put out your workers, call them all back. There's an interesting shift around of of calling your workers away from areas so people don't get their benefit, uh, setting up later turns so you'll have more action points at certain areas. It, it's not nothing. It's true. The key objections that I have to Trolls and Princesses are twofold. Number one, the downtime is brutal. And I think you emphasized that when you said you would probably be better with fewer players. With fewer players, you would get more turns, you get to do more things, and you're not sitting around waiting. And part of the problem is, is that your turns are necessarily rather combinatoric. You get to do two actions on your turn. They can't be the same action. And sometimes you're worrying about using your first action to set up your second. Sometimes you're worried about using your second to set up your next turn or what have you. And the other big problem that I have is that a lot of the big moves in Trolls and Princesses are about capturing princesses. That's fine. They're worth 10 points, effectively, and they give you a special power. It's great. You have to work towards it. That That's all well and good. The problem is, is that it seems so heavily opportunistic in terms of the circumstances for doing so. You have to make sure that there's an available princess in the supply of the area that you're going to, and you have to assume that there's a huge population. Twice... Not a whole lot of princesses were captured in our game, but twice, specifically the reason why a princess was captured was because someone had the exact right action card in order to do so. I play this card that adds a princess to the precise sector where there happens to be a high troll density. You need a lot of trolls to capture And the king goes there as well. And then the king goes... Exactly. Then the king goes there as well. And honestly... If I had not had that exact card at that exact moment, I don't know how I would have done it. And so when I did it, and when I saw other people did it, it was not satisfying uh, as a a gameplay experience in Trolls and Princesses. And there are a number of other things like that, too. The things that you can do by yourself, the things that you can set up, even turn on turn, aren't especially satisfying. Mostly what you have to do is take advantage of other people's placements, but it doesn't feel like when I'm engaging in my placements... I have to or should worry about what other people are doing because they're only going to be able to take advantage of the exact right card. So it's not even just a luck problem. It's a strange opportunism problem. Because of the game's length and because of the game's grit, which is fine. It's a medium-length Euro. It's 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 okay. But I don't like it when a game of, say, 90 minutes is that opportunistic in terms of the big scoring moves. So I was a little disappointed, actually more than a little disappointed by that aspect. It's not so much the variability. I don't demand that there be variable setup or randomized player powers or whatever. Uh, but I, 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 the, the fundamental structure of the game was pleasing enough, but the big moves felt unsatisfying. And that, I think, is, is an unfortunate consequence of the way Trolls and Princess works out. And given that, you don't really have any opportunity to flush your hand of action cards or cycle them very effectively. Given that very often you're going to be selecting from uh, a tableau of scoring conditions and not be able to flush them, or this, that, and the other, I, I honestly feel like the opportunism and the whims of fortune are a little more deterministic than they want to be of a game of this ilk. The other thing I feel it does that is interesting is 
a lot of games like Scythe and Terra Mystica, you're trying to get a bunch of stuff off of your board. You're trying to clear your board because it opens up more things. This happens in Trolls and Princesses, but what it says is when you put out your stuff, you have to bring back neutral human stuff, and you have to build stuff for it to go. You can't just replace it from where your troll buildings and or tokens came from. You have to add on to your map and make sure there's somewhere for it to go. And I thought that was, you know, a little, you know, something different than other games don't do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, much, Much of Trolls and Princesses is very pleasing. I'm very happy to have played it. Uh, I, I might even be willing to play it again, not at a maximum player count. Uh, but again, that aspect that you've emphasized, the making room for things, again, dovetails with a lot of my problems with Trolls and Princesses. Again, the eponymous princesses, at, at the start of the game, you have a very small amount of room to shepherd away a small amount of things. But then the ability to get more of those things, more placement spots for those very high point-generating resources or, or aspects, are subject to a random display and princesses in particular might or might not be available. There might not be a princess bedroom available because, you know, it's hard to get a princess bedroom in a cave. I respect that. It's thematically appropriate, but ultimately again, getting all your ducks in a row for a Euro game is very much par for the course. And I don't mind doing that. So long as it's not too rigid in trolls and princesses, I just feel it's a little bit too tactical opportunistic and, and random uh, for, for my taste. Uh, all told, I would have preferred if I had a little bit more control over that that those scoring elements. But again, uh, as you say, mechanically it's 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 pleasing and engaging. Thematically, it's very very well done. The components are gorgeous and charming. But all told, I would would prefer it in a smaller player count with a little more control. That's Trolls and Princesses by Game Brewer. So in swag, we have finally received our copy of Voidfall. And so I've had a little bit of Nigel Buckle and David Tertzi on the mind. We have not yet played Voidfall. That will be coming. But instead, I decided to pull out Imperium Legends because it's been a long time since I've played. And granted, in when you play Imperium, the civilization card building game, not the Dune card deck building game, nor the sci-fi deck construction game. <laughs> Woof. So, <laughs> play Imperium Legends and Classics mixed together, but most of the civilizations that were chosen were from uh, Legends, especially since, and this is one of the great virtues of Imperium as a civilization game, you look at the list of civilizations, and some people might be put off by the made-up ones, like the Arthurians, the Utopians, the Atlanteans, things like that. Some people might be jazzed by those inclusions, but it's hard to be unimpressed when there's a whole lot of emphasis of the subcontinent. There's the Olmecs. Uh, they're going to be in the new expansion. There's going to be more uh, indigenous empires, particularly of uh, North America. And I'm, I'm a big fan of that approach to civil. Now, if you want to play the Greeks and the Romans, you can do that too. But, and I, every time I play, I learn something new. I got to learn about Arthur Shastra this time because I played as the Morians. So, you know, just not, I, I didn't do any deep reading or anything, just looking up, what is this thing? <laughs> I was very pleased to learn a couple of new details about a civilization that I don't know a heck, heck of a lot about. So that was very pleasing. And of course, the gameplay of Imperium, I never, I never feel comfortable bringing it to the table because it's not at its best with three. It's usually at its best with two. But the problem is, and, and solo, it's got a very good solo mode. But I need to remember, look, so it's not at its best with three. Suck it up and play it with three, because it's a great game. <laughs> and sure enough, I just brought it to a public game day and uh, played it with a couple of friends, and it went over great. And was that their first playing of it? or Yes, it was. Oh, nice. But 
again, the downtime can be brutal. Don't play it with people that have a very, very, very serious unwillingness to plan their turns between rounds, right? Well, because you've got your hand of cards. You're going to have your three actions on your turn. They're, they're, the market's going to change a little bit in between. You might get some additional unrest or whatever happened to your discard. But there's no excuse for not having some idea about how to hit the ground running. Yes. Now, not every turn necessarily for each action. I don't expect everybody to have it all programmed out. But certainly this is not a... Imperium is not a game for people who just put their hand face down on the table and spend zero attempt to grapple with what they're going to do next. Uh, that having been said, it's still a very, very, very good deck builder. I think it is a very, very, very good take on civilization. And as I've said before, I really appreciate how it it seems more human than a lot of the other civilization games because you don't have immortal god kings. You have these very important historical figures like Chandragupta, in my case, who show up, do something consequential, and then they die because they're not going to be adjudicating the empire for millennia. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really, really curious to see what's going to be happening with Imperium Horizons, which is the next expand alone set uh, from Osprey Games that's supposed to be releasing next year. It's probably one of my most anticipated releases for, for next year, all told. And like I said, I, I figured that this would be Nigel Buckle and David Sertzay training wheels. Not that they have anything mechanically in common with Voidfall, but I just looked at Voidfall and said, oh yeah, Imperium. <laughs> so... Very happy to get Imperium Legends back to the table and, of course, Imperium Classics. And this is a reminder that I need to suck it up and not be one of those people who's like, I will only play games at their ideal player count. Now, that's not to say that I'm going to go play El Grande with two or three players, but I should be more willing to play Imperium with three players. That's Imperium Legends by Nigel Buckle and David Zertze, published by Osprey Games in 2021. So we were sent a game called Neotopia. By Arcane. Orlando Sa and Andre Santos, published by Arcane Wonders. It was sent to us by Arcane Wonders, and you compared this to an older game that was only a two-player game. Well, it, it in theory, it's only a two-player game. I compared it to Tosh Kalar by Vlada Kvatel, in that it is a tiling game where what you're trying to do is satisfy certain patterns. And some of the patterns are privately held, and some of the patterns are publicly held. And whoever can make pattern arrangements better uh, will ultimately win. So that's what you're doing in Neotopia as well. You just have three actions on your turn, nice and simple. You're either taking these nice chonker discs really lovely from discs. the left or right of the three different areas. They're called factories. So you bring these, you can move these in as long as they're either starting off in the center or touching other discs that are there. And you're trying to form these patterns that you have in your hand. Or if you don't like the patterns that are in your hand, one of the other actions you can do is to draw a card. And then there's all sorts of other funky things going on, special ability discs that you can pick up or other things like that. Like George Clinton? Just just so. Okay. And so there are some interesting things there. There is, uh, because every time one of the factories clears that are that provide the chips that come on, you get the chips from the center. So if there's no none of the color that you need, you can sort of see the color that you want. Well, there's only one on this side, so I'll sort of waste an action to to bring that in so the, the new ones all funnel in and then you build your design. I like it. I like it at three players because there's more chance for your patterns to get disrupted as opposed to just, you know, waiting for your turn to complete your you know, and now it's the other person to complete theirs. And so the three different areas are constantly changing. At the end of the game, you're going to get some points for your longest sort of run of your color in each area. All in all, it was un inoffensive. 
Yeah, I think inoffensive is a good word for it. Again, this is usually not a common criticism that I have. I like randomness in games. I like a bit of chaos. And indeed, when it comes to chaos, I think it's fair to say that in terms of a lot of my preferences for games, like some of the PAX games, a number of ta uh, Stranger, Tableau Builders, certainly Cosmic Encounter, my tolerance for chaos is much, much higher than yours. But this disruption of patterns that existed in Neotopia in a multiplayer context, it's the classic example of just accidentally getting in people's way. If I could have any sense of blocking, it's like, hmm, I will spend this action just to block you or something, like happens in many tile lane games. I would be perfectly fine with it. But essentially what was going on was there were three people trying to play a kind of spatial arrangement game where our tactical moves were constantly being accidentally disrupted by everyone else pursuing their tactical patterns. And consequently, it felt like worse than multiplayer solitaire, in effect. I just don't appreciate that kind of player interaction. And then coupled into that is that, you know, the ticket to ride syndrome, right? Where it's like... First thing I do on my turn is draw a card. Oh, look, if I add one disc over here, yes. I get that pattern. <laughs> yes. Bam, five points. Yes. Now, when it's working at its best, Neotopia is actually kind of clever because there is this face-up display of cards, and you might look and say, oh, in Huey satisfying that pattern, he's actually set up half of the necessity for this other pattern that's available on the tableau. I will draft that and then work towards that. And so there's actually this idea of opportunistic parasitism, which, unlike the opportunistic parasitism in Trolls and Princesses, is not purely dependent on some random action card which you don't have much control over cycling. It's a publicly available display, and it's a function of people being able to look at the chaos of the board and the mess and try to infer a pattern that might be most easily satisfied at the display. When that's happening, I enjoy Neotopia. The rest of the time, I do not enjoy Neotopia. Like, you talked about the display of tiles. How often is it the case? Yes, there's the ability to waste a few actions to get the color you desperately need. But how often was it the case we looked down at the display and say, oh, there's no blue available anywhere. The only way for me to introduce any blue into the system is to waste two-thirds of my turn to then introduce blue into the system, and then my turn's going to be over anyway, and someone else is going to take the blue, and there won't be any blue available for me anyway. Again a kind of random noise into a system that I think disrupts what the, you know, the fundamental cleverness that Utopia I think was, was aiming towards. Yeah. It's, it's very short. So I still think it does its job that it sets out to do. It has this interesting sort of, I don't know, man, that, that juxtaposition of spatial puzzle and uh, of tactical arrangement and noise, I found very disarming. The cognitive dissonance alone was, was very strange. It does have a, that, uh, an interesting card system where, uh, like you were saying, where you could just, the per other person sets you up, but it's not this constant chaining of cards because you cannot play the same type of card on top of the pitchers. They have pitchers underneath. They have little pitchers, yeah. And you can't, you can't play the same pitcher mark. Yeah. This, this is what I'm trying to say. That part, I, I agree. That part was really, really good. So the suits of the cards are more or less corresponding of the colors that they use. So, you know, Huey in quadrant one of three makes an arrangement with green and red tiles. It's like, okay, well, nobody gets to play another green and red scoring card in that in that sector until somebody else makes a different pattern. And that encouragement to, to, to not trivially capitalize off of somebody else's structure, like, I make a line of three and score a card. It's like, oh, I need a line of four. All right, I'll just add the fourth and score the card. No, it was a very, very simple and very clean way to avoid that. Yeah, that's what that's what I think I was trying to get at. It's just the, such a simple little mechanic that fixes such a huge 
problem. Yeah, there are a number of clever bits. If if it weren't for this constant, the supply randomness and the strange unintentional blockage, uh, really makes it strange. And then there was that other problem that you had. There are some fancy cards, fancy cards, <laughs> right? Where where you are incentivized to put another player's color down because you'll score more points for it. And if they happen to get that card, they'll score less. And it, it is better for the other player because, like I said earlier, you're going to get points for the longest chain in a certain sector. So other players playing these cards is sometimes beneficial to you. But because the deck is so big, sometimes you might not even get your cards to come up. And that was a problem in our game. Yep. A number of clever bits. I don't... i probably not inclined to play again. I, honestly, when it comes to simple tiling games, Reiner Knizzi has such a stranglehold on my preferences that, uh, you know, unless unless you get everything right. And Neotopia, unfortunately, gets a number of things uh, a little wonky for my tastes. But it is very approachable, and just manipulating those bake-like tiles is very pleasant. I will grant you that, absolutely. Neotopia by Arcane Wonders. I get to play Trailblazers. Trailblazers is by Ryan Courtney. Ryan Courtney is the one who designed Pipeline. And for anybody who said that there's too many rules in Pipeline and not enough uh, messing around with pipe shapes, allow me to tell you, Trailblazers is your game. Brutally simple, very fast, spatial puzzle, head cracking open. It is remarkably headache-inducing for someone with my preferences. It reminds me very clearly of Calico. Calico is this adorable game, very cute, lovely colors, such a family-friendly theme, and it's this incredibly difficult optimization spatial puzzle that you're constantly being agonizingly pulled in a bunch of different directions. Trailblazers reminds me of that a lot. It's this nature theme about making trails and having little bicycle paths that go around a little camp. And they're like, okay, and you're drafting these cards, which are basically two-by-one squares that have various intersecting paths. This one has a little blue path that intersects with the orange path and have to make these. And then you see the scoring conditions, the special scoring goals. And then, uh, honestly, when I saw the special scoring goal, I knew that Trailblazers was going to kick my ass from here to next year. Down the trail. 100%. Your, your trail was blazing. So, for example, one of the goals was you have these big camps and you set up one camp every round until the last round where you've run out of camps. One of the goals was, one of the first two scoring goals was completely encircle one of your camps with a path that successfully connects back to its own camp. So what you need to do is you need to put out one kit. Now, keep in mind, other people at the table did this thing. I looked at it and I knew it would be impossible for me. I could barely... I <laughs> I was like at a baby crawling next to Usain Bolt. That was what was going on here in this game of Trailblazers. So you put out a, a, a camp, which is this big, big, fat card. And then you're drafting these smaller cards. In order for a path to work, it has to start from the appropriate camp's color and then end at the appropriate camp's color. Now, a smart person, a person who's able to do these kinds of spatial arrangements, would draft cards, say, setting up the blue path even before they've put out the blue camp. I can't do those things. <laughs> and the idea of setting out the orange camp, for, as an example, and then making a pa orange path sufficiently large, and then being able to put the blue camp in the middle of that big loop, and then still being able to do something with that blue path. Oh my goodness. Now, <laughs> if this is your kind of game... Trailblazers is it. I have to say, in terms of efficiency of rules, transparency of scoring requirements, and sheer 
facility of being able to internalize the trade-offs that were involved, Trailblazers does a great job. I mean, Calico feels very, very artificial, but nonetheless, it's it's still very much uh, a, a very transparent idea. Trailblazers, I think, is an evolution of that notion. It's It's got a better sense of spatiality because you're not just filling in a set board. You're literally just laying out these cards in a freeform pattern so as to make these various trails. And the different scoring conditions are vaguely thematic in nature, as opposed to just these arbitrary sets of you're constantly adding up these very arbitrary colors and A C D B D D D. Precisely. And so Trailblazers, I think, is is absolutely a success in that sense. Of the games of this ilk, like blunt spatial puzzle kind of tile arrangement, I really think Trailblazers is really good. It's got lovely little anim- animal meeples. You could have a hawk next to a wolf, next to a moose, next to a bison on the same path, the same bicycle path even. Okay, I forgot what I said about vaguely thematic. It doesn't make any sense. And it's it's a it's a nice little package. So, Ryan Courtney, Bitewing Games, published this year after successful crowdfunding, Trailblazers. We finally got Federation to the table. This is designed by... Dimitri Perry and Mathieu Verdier. And the our copy was published by Eagle Griffin Games. And this is was a fantastic little game, Mark. What you're doing is you're placing your workers out into the Senate. And you can either place... And they're these nice, chonky uh, poker chips. And you well, can the either, deluxe version, yes. The very expensive uh, deluxe version is there are... There, there is the version without those components. Gotcha. Okay. So you're placing your senators out. And you're either placing them on the vote side, which will be uh, done at the end of the round. Or you're placing them on the sort of build infrastructure side. And you're doing this to these several different planets that are out there that all sort of work in a different way to get you either tokens to help you do stuff or or special abilities that you can use right away or ones that are going to last you throughout the game or spaceships or all sorts of different things going on. But the decision space on on which senators to place in what order and in what rows and columns and just the whole package mark was was fantastic. We we weren't very good senators. We we <laughs> we did not we were very selfish and we worried about our own advancement. We I really didn't uh help the universe. We didn't really much. fund many projects. We believe very firmly in fiscal conservatism. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's a great <laughs> political way to put that. Mark. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I like worker placement games to just have a couple of differentiating features to make me feel like I'm doing something new and Federation absolutely delivered on that score because you're constantly being pulled about the act between the actions you want to do and how you're going to execute them by virtue of the area majority scoring for putting out your senators and or the funding requirements to either fund endgame conditions and or personal projects that you want to do. That part was great. doesn't feel like a political game at all. It's a, it's a reasonably straightforward uh, Euro worker placement game with a little bit more player interaction than, than none because of this area majority scoring and this competition. Uh, it is tracks on tracks on tracks. You're just advancing up a whole bunch of different tracks, but at least all the tracks feel different. As opposed to just, well, this one's going to give you this kind of resource, and this one's going to give you this other kind of resource. No, yeah, they, they, yeah. they feel interesting. All of the all the planets were different, and they all did something that seemed important. Yes. None of them, one didn't seem more important than the other. One uh, let you get better income at the end of the round. The other gave you tokens that made your senators better. The other one got you gems and more economy. The other one let you trade that economy to yep. get improve it. One... Uh, 
did stuff, something, I guess you could say, with population that gave you, you know, either instant abilities or abilities throughout the game. And one was just sort of an asteroid thing that just, you know, gave you more resources. resources. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I put it in the same category mentally as Cryo. They're very, very different games. Federation and Cryo are very different. The reason why I connect them in my head is because... I wouldn't call either of them stunningly innovative, but what they both are are very, very solidly designed Euros with a couple of bits of flavor to differentiate them in a crowded market. And often that's all I want. That may sound like a low bar, but given the sheer volume of Euros and the sheer volume of worker placement Euros, sometimes it isn't. And sometimes a lot of games fail to clear that very low hurdle. And Federation was very enjoyable. The rounds move at a very, very good clip. The rules explanation was is is a little bit of a bear because of you know you have to explain how all the because the tracks are also differentiated you have to explain how each of them work they all have their own some of them have their own basic mini economies that work under it but it's all perfectly transparent and once you get going the rounds go very very quickly and again the pointed trade offs I need to do this action but wait if I do that action I can't compete for the air majority scoring that I really want to this round and oh wait there's this law that I need to get past again it's not really a political game it's mostly just area majority masquerading as politics. And I, I'm looking forward to my next playing in Federation. I thought it was really, really well done. And I'm looking forward to seeing how it feels different with different setup considerations and different timing of the scoring considerations. And all this, all the, all that we've talked about is just, that's on the board. This doesn't even cover this giant player board where there's a whole different game going on as well. <laughs> well, it, it offers you the opportunity, again, slightly different from a lot of other uh, competitors in the market. On occasion, you get to pull off combos. Not all the time. You know, we've been playing a lot of games, many of them by... by Suchi. A lot of them by Suki, that have just, you know, combos all the time. Endless combos. And I really appreciate the fact that you have to build a lot to get there, and you trigger them once, and then you move on. And these are all just these one-shot combos that you can pull off. And so it is a minority of your turns when you do that, but nonetheless, it feels satisfying. It helps keep the, the, the pace of the game moving at a, a good clip as well. So Federation has a lot going for it. I, it's a shame that it's kind of difficult to get outside Europe, and mostly the edition that's available is very expensive. I personally don't know if it's worth that much money. Like, in terms of really well done medium weight worker placement games i think your money might be better uh, better spent like something by game brewer like oak you know similar kind of weight similar kind of genre and much less expensive i mean i'm I'm very glad to play it i'm looking forward to playing it more but it's a very expensive product in north america agreed that's federation by dimitri perry and mathieu verdier originally published by explorate published in north america by eagle griffin games I finally got to try Whirling Witchcraft. This is a game I'd heard about from a number of different sources. And in a week full of comparisons, I'm going to situate it kind of close to Furnace. Because Furnace and Whirling Witchcraft both say, can we make a cube pusher last about 30 to 45 minutes and still give you some of the satisfying elements of building an engine that converts cubes into different kinds of cubes. I'm going to take this one white cube and this one black cube, and I'm going to put them into this converter, and then I'm going to spit out two red cubes and two green cubes and things like that. Now, some games, mentoring no Century Spice Roads in particular, make that the entirety of the game and then say you're done, and you end up with something that I find extremely dull and dry. Some games, mentioning... Jeez, there's too many to mention. Make 
that the central core of the actions that you're doing and then stretch it out into 90 minutes and you feel like you're just an accountant by the end of the day. Now, there's a number of different approaches you can take. I I don't object to all cube pushers. Sidereal Confluence, Trading and Negotiation in the Elysium Quadrant, the shortest game name ever, is fundamentally a cube pusher, but it wraps it all in this lovely technological progression and negotiation structure. But what Furnace and Whirling Witchcraft do is they're like, how can we get these engines out quickly? How can we make them develop quickly? And how could we do it in a, in, in a reasonably tight rules-like pass- package? Furnace has a clever auction mechanism. Whirling Witchcraft has a drafting and combat mechanism because it's very cutthroat. The way that it works is every turn you draft a new card to wor- that constitutes your engine. You can run your engine in any order. And what you do is you take all the output of your engine and you hand it to the person to your right. You just give it all to them. If you ever overload their board, give them more resources than they can fit onto their board, that's your points. It's a little bullety. Yes, exactly. It is precisely the case you're just trying to shove everything downstream. Now, I will note, just as a minor side note for people who have been paying attention to my difficulties with clockwise and counterclockwise, especially when conjoined in the same game, Whirling Witchcraft is the first game in recent memory, or perhaps ever, that has combined clockwise drafting but counterclockwise attacking, and I wasn't confused about what I was doing. I knew where I was handing cards, and I knew where I was handing cubes. That was nice. I mean, I do... I'm not a huge fan of the fact that you're always going to be attacked by the same person, and you're always going to be attacking the same person. I think that would for people who care about a randomized setup, that's one of those instances where you really should be randomizing where you're sitting. Uh, but you know, it's a light, quick game. And so I'm not, and I'm not super competitive. So that was just, Oh, this is an interesting aspect of it structurally, not a serious objection. Whirling witchcraft was cute. I enjoyed it. You have to try to draft so that your engine starts chewing up more of the dreck that your opponent is feeding you all the time. You will have to also consider drafting cards that will spit out more resources that your opponent to your right cannot consume easily. So it's got a bit of a dynamic economy and it, it, it moves along at a good clip and you nonetheless get to have some cute witchy based art. So whirling witchcraft was very enjoyable. I was very glad to have been shown it and I would happily play it again. In the same sort of vein, I got to play Cosmo Octopus. Whirling witchcraft is designed by Eric Anderson Sunden, published by AEG in 2021. The same vein of pushing cubes, I got to play Cosmo Octopus. So what you're doing in Cosmo Octopus is you're trying to create, you're trying to get your eight tentacles. And when you get eight tentacles, you summon the great octopus. (laughs) Really? Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. So you're moving sort of the base of the octopus around this uh, three by three grid. That's the first thing you have to do in your turn. And that's either getting you a bunch of resources or letting you take a card from the, the supply. And so you're trying to manage your, your area because you only have eight eight of each of all the resources and only eight cards. And you're either getting, you know, these tokens that are double, uh, oct- double tentacles, but they cost 13. So, you know, with a limit of eight, you got to do all sorts of f- loops and flips in order to do that. Now they, they, ru- the, they ruined the numerical consistency. At, at the end of your turn, you have to go down to eight. So you have your black cards and your black resources. They're going to give you cards that will give you a discount on everything, right? So, and then you have your red cards, which will, uh, every time you take a resource, no, that's the, doesn't matter. Yellow cards are the one, every time you take a resource, you get more of that resource. Red cards were normally, uh, instants. Blue cards were these interesting sort of, uh, astronomical constellations that you had to fill out and they gave you tentacles. So lots of things going on. 
it was a very interesting game. The timing was very interesting at the end. You know, the winner had to pull off this, like, sort of, three, you can only play one card, but some of the cards had a lightning bolt on it that said you got to play another card. So the person that won, because someone else was about to win, they had to pull off, like, this three-card combo in order to get, you know, all the resources they needed and all the tentacles out that they needed to pull the game. So it was very interesting. I'd play Cosmo Octopus again. Might be a little bit long for what it offers, but we did play it a full four players. Probably moves a little bit quicker at less. I was much happier with the game when everything was eight. You're talking about four players, a resource of 13, a double set. Uh, I'm just a little disappointed. It was eight. Eight's your total. It was, it, was, it was a nice little theme about how everything was eight until there were other numbers involved. I'm just, oh, I, I'm just saying. It's I'm not sorry. a big deal. It's just a mild disappointment. So Cosmo Octopus is designed by Henry Audubon and published by Paper Fort Games. On the topic of animal-based games, as a fitting conclusion to Fat Bear Week, I got to play Paku Paku again. I have yet to acquire my own copy of Paku Paku. It's not yet in hand. But the deliverer of Paku Paku was able to allow me to partake once again of the glory of an overeating panda and the real-time dice rolling and dexterity that is the glory of Antoine Boza, Paku Paku. I don't think I really appreciate this extra practice of Paku Paku you're getting in before I get to play it. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta take it seriously, man. I am taking it seriously. That's what I'm saying. That's why I'm putting up a protest right now. I have have but two words to say. Get good. Paku Paku is a delight and a joy. It is utterly frenetic and marvelous. And I cannot wait to introduce you to it. Paku Paku is such a well-done game. Now... It, 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 it's got all the things we love. It's got bullying. It's got speed. It's got dexterity. What else could you possibly want? Now, one of the things that Paku Paku has that a number of most excellent dexterity games doesn't is a scoring system that at least kind of works. Because there are many dexterity games that we love, one we will be talking about very shortly, where we thoroughly enjoy it and the victory conditions don't really work or don't really make a whole lot of sense or, or aren't structurally designed in, in any way that seems to pass monster, but we're nonetheless perfectly happy to, to, to play it. And indeed, we'll probably talk more about that in the context of the topic as well. Uh, Paku Paku suffers a little bit from the same problem of, as Whirling Witchcraft, because if you happen to be sitting between players who are much faster than you are, you are going to feel the pressure a great deal, because in Paku Paku, you want to divest yourself of dice as fast as possible, Whenever you roll the green side on a die, you pass the die clockwise. One of the ways the round can end is if somebody has four dice in front of them. And then you have to shout, and I do mean shout, Paku Paku Stop! Or Paku Paku, or Paku Paku MF, or whatever you, you might ha- be ha- happen to be inclined to shout in a, in a crowded room of children. Uh, just Or in a church, or, you know, you know wherever you where, happen to wherever be. Wherever you happen to be, yeah. And if you happen to be sitting between people who are much faster than you, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, so again, it's it's not necessarily what you would call rigorous from a, a, a competitive game standpoint, but again, that's not something we care about uh, uh, over much. And since we're talking about animals, dexterity games, and octopodes, uh, I will point out that uh, Crash Octopus, the more I think about it, I, I really think that structurally speaking, it, with, especially with the variant that I tried with great success last time I tried Crash Octopus, might just be that you know perfect combination of cute and rigorous as far as dexterity games go. But Paku Paku is uh, real-time and therefore uh, full of enjoyment. Designed by Antoine Boza, published by Ravensburger in 2017. Can't wait for my own Paku Paku. You're nice enough to show me Brave Rats. 
Now, I compared this to uh, Love Letter, and you said no. But I'm wondering, is it not? Is it not the same mechanisms in in Love Letter? Don't doesn't everyone not pick a card secretly, put it down, you flip it up, and whoever has the highest card wins. But there's all sorts no. of special abilities. No. that no, okay, no, that's not I, how well, Love Letter I, works I play, at all. I played Love Letter years ago. It's got the same designer. They're both by Siege and I. Gotcha. But no, that's not how you play Love Letter at all. <laughs> okay, that's what I mean. That's why I, I, how I remembered Love Letter. But so no, you've you've, you've got a, a two card hand, as it were, and you play an action card, and you might eliminate somebody. That's more or less how Love Letter works. Gotcha. But in Brave, Ra- Brave Rats, that is not how it works. You have to win four contests. And like I said, everyone picks a card secretly. Everyone. It's a two-player of, of game. Of the two players. Yes. The two players pick a card secretly. Yes. And they flip them up. And then you sort of use any special abilities they might have. And then in the end, whoever has the highest card wins that particular round. And it's all about the special powers. So there's the obvious card that says... This round, low power wins. There's the prince who just automatically wins the round, regardless of powers. There's the typical nullify the other the opponent's There's nullify special, special powers. There's the princess who has a value of zero, but automatically wins the game in its entirety if somebody else plays the prince. R consists exclusively of just uh, eight, uh, a slim set of cards. I carry it with me always in my purse. It's been far too long since I'd played R. Last all of... Now... Walker keeps saying Brave Rats. I did not show him Brave Rats. Brave Rats comes in a large, gaudy tin. I have nothing against large, gaudy tins, but when you have fewer than 20 cards inside the box, mm, I think I'll prefer my $4 Ziploc bag with just (laughs) folded up instructions and a small number of cards. Thank you very much. Now, that having been said, it is almost impossible to find R on BoardGameGeek because you just enter R and it's a whole thing. And then there were a bunch of sequels that Seiji and I made that I haven't tried. One of them was called RR and there was one called RRR, not related to the brilliant movie on Netflix. If you look at Brave Rats, they do have a lot of pictures of R, so... They're fairly connected. The way Board Game Geek works is all editions of different themes go under the same category, and they label the game as the most widespread one in the United States. Gotcha. So if you search for Brave Rats, that's what's going to get you R. But the version that I've got is R. Uh, I recommend it for portability reasons, if nothing else. I mean, I've got I've got nothing against the theming. Brave Rats, at least, was doing anthropomorphic animals before it was cool. <laughs> so, But it's a great game. I, I highly recommend R. R, or Brave Rats, is designed by Senji Kanai and put out by Kanai Factory. On the topic of more animals, we played Yura Yura Penguin Mini. This is my first experience with Yura Yura Penguin Mini. And I very much approved of the fact, not only is it in a very, very tiny box, but I was afraid that the smaller penguin meeples would be less cute. But that is absurd. Smaller is cute. Exactly. What was I thinking? Why was I concerned? The other thing that's great about the mini version of Your Euro Penguin is that the tower is less stable because the pieces are less stable. They're so light. They're so light. And we we were tottering. Very, now, we, we ended up playing to card exhaustion. More on that in a moment. But nonetheless, the tottering started very, very quickly. It was great. Yeah. That's exactly what you want out of a dexterity game. Now... The Again, the victory conditions of Yuri Yuri Penguin are not particularly satisfying. It is more or less uh, if you, you know, cause the tower to get knocked over, whatever, you get eliminated. But then the victory condition is getting rid of your cards. You keep comparing it to Crazy 8s, which is legitimate, and or Uno or whatever, what have you. So naturally, there are some special action cards. And indeed, in the instructions that are these little cartoons of penguins explaining the game to each other, one of the penguins explains... Oh, there are special action cards. Sounds like a card game to me. It's like, sure enough. But 
One of them is force your opponent to draw two cards. Another one is take another turn right away. These will determine who wins. Flatly. Like, unless there's a huge disparity in stacking skill, truly massive, whoever draws more of those is going to win. Straightforward. Now, again, I still love playing Euro Hero Penguin, but all told, I prefer it when dexterity games have slightly more rigorous victory conditions. That fewer fewer as visually delightful as Euro Hero Penguin, though. It's great. Like I said, very much like Crazy Eights, you must match the color or shape. It has the same, you know, switch directions, pick up two, like you said, skip a turn, and then whoever gets the most of those will be the loser. And it's a labor of love. It is. Oh, yeah, it's self-published. It, it, it hand-assembled. Hand-assembled. Yep. Shipped individually from Japan to all of the backers. By the designer Yabuchi Ryoko. I have both copies and will remain to have both copies. Yep. <laughs> it is fantastic. Yuri or Penguin. Next up, Mark, was after we played our, he brought out Innovation. This is by Carl Chuddock and published by Asmati Games. And I, I forget to keep reminding myself that this is a game of high escalation. Like, cards are going to go berserk and crazy, but it also really shows what I hate and what, I don't want to say triggers me, because, <laughs> I you know, I get upset, but I don't really get upset. I just get frustrated. Mm-hmm. Games that negate past turns. So I'm not saying this is exactly what happened, but it was like I had a card that would get me points based on as long as I had different cards. So I'd spend a few turns getting different cards. And then I would take a turn putting out these different cards into a scoring pile. Yep. So that was several different turns to get out a couple Hold on, of... you're, you're missing a key... Finish your story, but I will just point out you're missing several key steps. Well, I'm just, keep going. I, like I said, it doesn't really matter... You know, the, oh, it the, matters. The exact, the exact. Oh, no, 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 it does. But keep going. The exact thing. So, and then, and then, so then later on, Mark got an advancement and then he played a card, which. Pirate Code. Which not only took those cards. That some took, of them. Some of them. Two of them. That's, that's all I was putting out. I was taking several turns to put out two. He would take two and not only would they come out of my scoring pile, which took several turns to put in there, but they would go into his scoring pile for all of that one action. Now, of course, you know, it's the normal innovation thing. You have to have make sure you have the equal symbols. I know all of that, you know, you have to, and you have to counter, and you have to, you know, and and if I drew a card, my next card would be just as outlandishly powerful. But that does not negate the fact that all of my past turns being negated is just sort of frustrating to me. Okay, why, why were you scoring points in innovation? I decided that that was going to be my way to win. I was just oh, you to... win innovation by scoring points. Yes. This is news to me. I played innovation about a hundred times. I didn't know that you win by you won by scoring points. You do. That's not true. You win well, by, by getting achievements. Achievements. Yes. You already banked the achievements. There's nothing that can take achievements away from you. You that, had banked the achievements. That's the points, true, but, but the points to, had but, done their job. True, but to get to the next level of achievement. So what you're saying is, is that you wanted the points. To be banked forever and for me to never be able to catch up with you on no, points. I, I'm not That's not that the way that it works. Innovation is a game of short-term opportunism. I, I said and that. And your, mis- your mistake was thinking that you had found the one thing you were just going to keep pumping for the rest of forever. Now, I will point out that another thing that you're leaving out is that Pirate Code will only steal cards that are of value four or less. Any future cards that you were going to score based on base was it, was it four or less? I yes. think it was, no, I think it's it was four the, or less. I think it was the two lowest. 
No, it will not target any card that is higher than five in your score pile. You didn't bother learning about any of these nuances. You didn't ask, wait, what's the end state of this ability? What are the icons so I can defend myself? I no, mis- no, no. I in- misheard then. I miss. I heard. Instead, what you decided was that the thing that you would, you would presuppose was going to be your overall thing for forever was no longer immediately viable. And thus, the entire game had turned on a single card play. Now, the fact that you were still winning after this this transaction, again, winning based in terms of achievements, didn't seem to enter into your mind. The fact that I had had to build to do other things and was remaining flexible... Exactly. How dare you? Yeah. No, well, I miss I respect the fact that innovation isn't for everybody. Again, as I said earlier on in this very episode, my tolerance for chaos is way, way higher than yours of a certain type. The kind of chaos where you have to keep your options open, diversify, accept the fact that, okay, that avenue is now closed. But in this particular case... I've seen much worse reversals. You had, but again, you had banked the achievements. You scored your points and you banked those achievements. That was the point of your score pile. They'd done their job. Oh, I need the next one though. The next one I need to get to 20 and you're taking two a turn. I'm not going to get to 20 anytime soon. Yeah, I would have been able to. I would have been able to steal about but, but, like two said, thirds of your score pile at that time, and I would have not been able to have touched. Any of your future scores, well, like, because by that point we're already scoring fives and sixes. Well, like I said, I, I misheard. Then I thought it was just the two lowest. I think I think this is a valuable lesson for both of us. Since I mean this sincerely, I'm, I'm no longer ragging on you. You got just just in terms of perfect disclosure and transparency. You got frustrated and immediately started. You you basically asserted that by virtue of a single card draw, uh, your entire game was scuppered and thus the game was pointless. Uh, and I thought about various possible angry reactions in my head. And at the time I didn't, uh, uh, the, the unhealthy reaction said, and I merely uttered, I concede and started putting away the game. Cause I didn't want to have that discussion at that time. Uh, so I think there, I think we can both grow as human individuals. Uh, it is, I'm perfectly willing to accept that innovation ain't for you, but I don't think it's fair to say that pirate code, either in that instantiation or in general, represents that innovation is a game that is entirely determined by a single card. Oh, no, I, I, I will not. I would not say that, nor did I say that. Now, between innovation and G and C, which would you rather play? I would play innovation anytime. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> have, and I, I, keep, I keep forgetting. Uh, you haven't played Glory to Rome, have you? No. You wouldn't like it, but you might find it interesting. I maybe I should show you Glory to Rome at some point. I don't know. Anyway, Innovation is designed by Carl Chetik, whom I have met personally and published by, full disclosure, my good friend Chris Cheslick at, at Asmati Games. It is entering its arguably fourth or fifth edition <laughs> soon. It's tough to tell because there were three editions and also Innovation Deluxe Edition, which was arguably basically the third. Ed- anyway. If you haven't played a Carl Chuddick game, I would encourage you to take a look at innovation. If you've ever enjoyed a PAX game, if you've ever enjoyed sort of wild tableau builders where a lot of action takes place and there's a lot of player interaction, innovation is worth looking at. If you are a Chuddick fan, well, then you've probably already bought innovation at least twice over the course of your life. We played a game of Don't Llama Dice, just to round out our animals, Menagerie. Yep. We have, I don't think we have anything left to say about Don't Llama Dice, honestly. We don't. You're, you used up your, your luck in the previous week, so this week the luck turned on you and punished right. you. It's true. I went from a spectacular game where I ended with, I think, less than five points to a game where twice 
I personally said, well, the only way I can bust is if I roll nothing but these two values. And that's exactly what happened. It was it was entertaining, to say the least. I think it's fair to say that right now, Don't Llama Dice is our favorite filler. Just in terms of, yeah, we've got, you know, 15 to 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, let, let's let's roll some dice and see some wild stuff happen. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't Llama Dice, Reiner Knizia, published by Amigo. Oh, we got tons of more animals to go. All right. So <laughs> as for more animals, we stream, I stream every Saturday. I already talked about Cosmo Octopus. We also played one of my favorite games of this year. It's called Almost Innocent because I just love deduction games. The art on this is amazing. And it really brings out the game. This is designed by Felipe Atali and put out by Colossal Games. And it's very much sort of incognito. There are six characters or six victims, six weapons, six uh, crime scenes, and there are cards for each one. Everyone gets four cards, one of each, and so you know that the four cards that you have belong to somebody else, so you know that those four aren't yours. Now, okay, sorry. And the cards you have correspond to the player to your left? Uh, yes. I'm sorry, I shouldn't ask this question. I'm just getting flashbacks to my deep confusion. It, it's it was, not the game's it, fault. It was this big, is entirely it, it my It was fault. on your player aid. I don't know if we talked about this when we played, but there's giant arrows on your player aid. It says, ask this person. I know, but I still, and, every time I tell yeah, this person. I could be staring at those arrows and still not be able to get it. Such was my confusion. I just Something about counterclockwise just messes with my head. Well, we we, uh, we realized it was sort of a problem, so we were on top of it. It Good. didn't seem as it was that, that much of a problem. Good. You're either asking, and and there's this giant grid of all of these you know places and, and victims and, and people, and you simply ask a question, how many of my clues are in this row or column? Or is my particular thing in this column? And when you ask that question, it's it's really being asked by everyone to everyone at the table. So you go around the table, everyone gives the answer to the question that you asked. And then you sort of try to figure out on your board what cards are yours. And then at the end, everyone has to, you know, give the right answers. And there's this charming little story about what's going on. And It's usually and pretty grim. It's very grim. <laughs> and, there's, and there's tons of boards. So later on, your one of your victims might actually take up like four spaces. So you say, yeah, you're in column A and you're actually in column yeah, yeah. In, in multiple columns. So you right. have no idea. What scenario did you play this time? Just the second one. Just the second and one? We'll just, we'll chug along. We'll do, every time I bring it out, we'll just, I'll just keep creeping sure. up by one. Because we, we, we didn't even use the hammer. Everyone got all the answers right. Good. No problem. It was fantastic. Good, good. No no unforced errors that caused confusion? Correct. I good. was very worried. I think I just got a combination of, of clues and questions that made it, that it could be multiple things. You know what I mean? I could, it was very hard for me to lock down until I got one piece of, uh, of information and then it all just sort of, you know, locked down in place. Good, good. I just love that kind of thing. Almost Innocent, one of my favorite games of this year. Got to play another game of Albedo by Kai Herberts and Herberts Entertainment, self-published. This bizarre combination of deck building and blind bidding is so delightful to me. It just gets a lot of things really right because it avoids a lot of the pitfalls of blind bidding in that, again, it's it's about being flexible, not in the sort of navigating chaos kind of way, but in the way it's like, I need to construct bids such that if I get there first, I'll be able to get something. But if I don't get there first, I'll also be able to get something. And being able to thread that needle, I find consistently engaging. And just in terms of how quick and visceral it is, you start with nine cards in your deck and you have a six-card hand. Anything you buy in round one is probably going to be seen in round two. I love that. It's marvelous. (laughs) 
You know, like there are lots of deck builders that we absolutely love. Core Worlds, for example, is guilty of this. You know, you might buy a card and maybe see it three rounds later and maybe use it once over the course of the game. Mm, still have Core Worlds, but I do really like how, how it, uh, Albedo emphasizes that degree of dynamism. What did you think of Albedo, Walker? Oh, that was my, this is like my third plane of it. Still love it. I think the, this particular session was a little odd because we had a lot of planets that were th- worth zero. That is an excellent so, point. So it, it made, made the rounds odd because yes. if you, we focused, a lot of times we'd focus on one particular planet and whoever just happened to get the highest initiative of that round. That's an excellent point. You're right. It, it was, it was a little weird, but still, still very enjoyable. Uh, there's different factions you can play. You can, you know, construct your deck differently. I love it. Yeah, pretty obscure game, but if you have a chance to try Albedo, I highly recommend it. So back to more animals. Mark, we got to play Zoo Vadis. This is designed by Reiner Knizia, published by Bitewing Games, and it is a delightful, light sort of negotiation, quick to play, well, with Reiner Knizia. You know it's going to be nice and simple. You move a guy ahead, or you place a new one on the map. More or less, yeah. More or less. Yeah. I was very curious to see how you would react to Zuvatis, because negotiation games aren't really your thing. It's the real-time element that is necessarily implied by negotiation games, because there's often a first-mover advantage. It doesn't matter whether it's a timed game or not. If you're the first player to go out and make a deal, you have a bit of an advantage, and so it, it benefits a certain set of behaviors that you just don't generally tend to enjoy doing in the context of games or in life in general. Uh, when you're feeling uh, uh, either salty or you're feeling uh, needling, you call this behavior bullying. I think that's half completely wrong, but there's a germ of truth to that. You know, there's a certain amount of, of fast-talking gladhandery that most negotiation games encourage, and that's just not your style. Well, so unlike serial conflicts where there's like this, you know, eruption and 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 crazy time and, and, <laughs> and so many different, you know, levels of, of value and who knows what's worth what. And, yep. And this is very straightforward. Everyone has the same goal. They need to get one uh, character to the end of the map. And it's, it's the majority. I need you to give me a vote here. I will give you a vote later or I'll let you use the special ability. All of the special abilities are very interesting and very useful and, and if you can internalize what everyone else can do, it really helps you, you know, swing those deals where you have multiple special abilities going off at once. It has, I'm not, has the, these peacocks and also has, <laughs> it has, if, uh, if you play Gugong or has this odd where the end of the map is going to fill up, there is enough room for one of every character in order to win. In a five player game. You, you must have someone there. Oh, in, in lower counts, there's more spaces? No, in lower counts, there's the same number of spaces. So there's two sides to the map. In a three to five player game, there are five spots available in what's called the Star Exhibit. It used to be the, the basically the Senate in, in, in Quo Vadis, the original Roman-themed game. But with fewer players, there are more peacocks available. Gotcha. And so, uh, Sorry, with fewer players, there are more peacocks, and thus you can flood the zone with more neutral players in an attempt to block people. If you're playing with six or seven players, there are seven spots available in the star chamber. Anyway, so with sorry, five, sorry, so with star five, exhibit. So with five, there's five spots, and you have to have some there to even be considered to score. More on that later. So the race is on. Oh, yeah. And it's very... It's, it's, 
kind of... Uh... You did not like when things took a turn and became cutthroat. Because Zuvatis is like 30 to 45 minutes. Everyone's happy to... Not, not everyone's agreeing to every deal, but everyone's happy to haggle and figure out what their options are and say, no, not now, I'll, take, I'll go with somebody else. Uh, and, and consider their options until there's three people in the star exhibit. When there's three people in the star exhibit and two players haven't gotten there, suddenly things get tense. Yes. And when that happened, I could almost see a change go over your countenance. You seemed to not enjoy that phase nearly as much as the earlier phases. Agreed. I, I, think, I think it's a little... A little too tight, maybe, for that particular part of the mm. game. Would but you maybe, be... I think maybe that's what 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 drives yeah. the earlier part. So it I, is. I see where it's necessary, but I, I can see also where it's going to make a lot of people bounce off it at the same time. Mm. Well, I agree with you that in terms of negotiation games, Zuvatis and Kulvatis before it is much more focused than a sort of freewheeling uh, uh, other kinds of deal-making games. However... I really have to uh, applaud the redesign work that Reiner Knizia did in conjunction with Bitewing Games for this new edition. So yeah, anthropomorphic animals, whatever. The special powers, which you can use twice during the game and are different for every faction, are new to this edition. And what they do is they give further grist for negotiation because you cannot use the special powers for yourself. They can only be used by somebody else. It's vaguely reminiscent of one of my favorite games of all time, Senji. Because in Senji, you have this deck of cards that you can't use. All they're there for is for trading. Similarly, in Zuvatis, basically you're given these toys and said you can only sell them. And so what that does is it forces you to consider deals. It forces you to consider options. It forces you to consider more complex, more multivariate deals. Nothing as complicated as this multi sort of uh, multi-turn kind of you give me this converter, I give you the cubes to run it, et cetera, et cetera, that you would find in Citadel Confluence, but nonetheless far more interesting than just I will give you X points or I will vote for you next time. And I really appreciated that. And the balancing is not only is it grist for negotiation, but you also get points for using your special ability. And so you're encouraged even further to go out and make those deals. It really takes what was a solid negotiation game. And I think really, really clever act of minimalism made it a touch more complicated, but vastly more interesting in the process. Yeah, And even just the simple pathing and the amount of spaces, because it's always like a majority and you get to vote for yourself. It's very interesting because there's these single spaces where you get advances for you as far as you want, but it's a lot longer. It's it's just this and you don't get points. Yeah, you don't get points. It's just very interesting sort of spatial thing that you can sort of suss out and and puzzle out and use to your advantage. And the Quan Chai Moria art is superb. All the animals have so much personality. The marmosets, the armadillos, the alligator. The, the al- rhino. The, the crocodile. Oh, my goodness. No, as, as, for me, it's especially the armadillos and the marmosets, I got to say. The the little wooden tokens are so delightfully rendered. Just, just, just the player screens alone are gorgeous. I'm willing to forgive it for being the, what, 50th game with anthropomorphic animals we've played this month. So I'm a huge fan of this edition of uh, this re-edition of Quovatis in Zuvatis. I think it's really, really well done. And this really is some stellar design work by Reiner Knizia. The base game was somewhat dry, but a a, a tribute to minimalism. And now it's barely more complicated than it used to be. It's, it's still very, very easy to explain. It's still very, very quick, but you're encouraged to do these much more interesting deals and the game states evolve in these much more interesting ways. 
And, and don't look at the rule book for projected scoring. It's it's full of crap. <laughs> yes, the uh, the examples in the rule book <laughs> of endgame scores are embarrassingly high, at least compared to how we play. I don't know. It's strange. That is Zuvatis by Reiner Knizia, published by Bitewing Games. Stick with animals. Lastly, <laughs> from me, A Feast for Odin. This is designed by Uwe Rosenberg and put out by Z-Man Games. And today's session really sort of solidified in how much of a heads-down game it is. Yeah. There's a little bit of blocking. Not really. And, you know, you're you're just doing your own thing. You're filling your board. You're doing your puzzle. You're figuring out what shapes you want. You're sort of doing your own strategy, your own occupations, which was fine. It's enjoyable. I still like it, but it's a little too heads down, oh, I think. I I think that just the the amount of interesting and fun things you get to do, for me, compensates it. I still prefer Agricola, largely because there's a, a smaller universe of things you get to do, but the resource and action selection is so tight that you're forced to engage with the other players in a more substantive way. So I agree with you that, that A Feast for Odin is very, very heads down and ultimately to its detriment. That having been said, I'm still happy to play it, and I'm still a, a big, big fan of the game by virtue of all the cool stuff you get to do. And, yeah, and you you virtually get 150 points, and it's very almost impossible to track how many points someone has. It's true. So you have no idea what... No, you're right. In many ways, it's a, a catalog of a lot of the sins of many Euro games. A bit of point salad, a bit of point mongering, not, no real player... Um, uh, interaction it rewards a lot of system mastery uh absolutely but uh, ultimately just the uh the, the how, it's nonetheless remarkably clean given the multitude of of systems that it has and it is sufficiently diverse and engaging and enjoyable for me and it is just the right level of spatial puzzle as far as polyomino placement goes <laughs> if it were a little bit more in depth if it were a little bit more like trailblazers i think that a feast for Odin would be painful for me but as it is i think it's pretty well calibrated i'm sorry you didn't find it satisfying no it's still i just mean it just remind me of how i still enjoy yeah. it but i just no, there's a tinge of disappointment i'm not yes. saying i i i i i i don't think that you hated the experience but it, it sounds like as I said, you were a little unsatisfied. Yeah, the shine was a little less. Yeah, that's too bad. We played with the expansion, and what it does is it mix up, mixes up the action spaces a little bit, introduces some more shapes, and introduces a main mechanism, I think is the main mechanism of A, you have your own personal hut, but B, they have a whole new strip that goes down the right-hand side that you use as your last action. And they're usually fairly powerful, and you can put one of your workers there to get just the action. But if you put two, you also get to play one of your occupations, which is not nothing. Yes. I'm still looking forward to the next expansion, the Danes, which is not being done by Uwe Rosenberg and has been in, in the works for several years now. But I'm looking forward to it. That is Feast for Odin. So those are the games we played last week. And now for a brief break while we pay some bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and luxuriating in the one and only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. 
ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. And we're back! Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So I've actually been going down a couple of YouTube rabbit holes lately. I'm not going to go into details about the controversies, and these aren't even related to board game media per se. But I just want to emphasize something. Insofar as a lot of these uh, ills in a lot of contemporary media go, I think a lot of them can be cured, or at least substantially alleviated, by attribution. I used to think that my emphasis on attribution was purely a consequence of my academic background. And in academia, you can get away with almost anything you want, so long as you properly attribute. I just thought that it was a weird fetish of my former clannish tribal existence as, as a member of the academe. Not a very good one, but nonetheless. And uh, the more I consume like new media, the more I'm convinced that that's not true, that attribution is desperately important. And one of the earliest things we did here at So Very Wrong About Games is we established a series of editorial policies about attribution, the necessity of doing so. And I can speak for myself when I repeat the words of another critic, I name them, I name them by name so that people can go check out their work. I should probably be quoting other critics more insofar as they influence my thought. Uh, but I am basically sick to death of the fact that in, in contemporary media, it seems to be the case that it is very, very common to just take the work of others and repost it and present it without any form of attribution whatsoever and just pretend as though all this creative work comes out of the ether. And I still respect the fact that at least in board gaming, the idea of publishing a board game without a designer or developer's name on the box is not common. So... Attribution won't save us, but it certainly makes things a lot better. As for games that are coming out, I saw a game today, Mark, called Dr. Rat. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is in the same vein of deduction. And so one player plays the sort of game master, and there's they need to sort of inform the other players what the rats are, are allowed to eat or maybe what they're not supposed to eat. <laughs> My understanding is that rats through, are allowed to through, eat whatever they want. Through trial and error. It looks very interesting. The The graphic design is fabulous. Definitely going to pick this up. This is going to be put out by Blue Orange, and they always do wonderful work, and it's designed by Johannes Kremer. So the International Gamers Awards have had their uh, ceremony at Essen. You can go to the International Gamers Awards website to see the awards ceremony. There will be a link in the episode notes. Congratulations to the three big winners. In the multiplayer strategy, strategy category, uh, the award went to Revive. So congratulations very much to Helga Meissner, Isla Svensson, Anna Vermlund, and Christian Amundsman Ospi. We're big, big fans of, of Revive. The two-player category was won by Oranienberger Canal. So congratulations to Uwe Rosenberg, another, uh, uh, another person whose works we tend to appreciate. And the solo award went to Earth. So again, if you're at all curious about seeing the award ceremony of the International Gamers Awards, you can find the link in the description. And congratulations to all the nominees and to all the winners. Lastly, for me, Mark, Warhammer the Old World. Do you know what that is? Is it uh, an upcoming movie by Superman? No. Or a role-playing game? Or a video game? 
or a series of novels. Games Workshop has decided to bring back Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah, okay. So blocks of units back again. This is going to be in retail in 2024. Are they keeping the, what's it called, Age of Sigmar? Yeah, I think they're going to have them both going. Okay. They, I didn't read anywhere that said one's going to be over top of the other one. But sure. So new rule book, new game, Warhammer. You say, sorry, sorry, you said new rule book. Don't you mean? Well, for now, <laughs> when it comes out, and then I'm sure there's will be the, the plethora of different don't, armies. Don't you need the army books too? Yeah, several yeah, okay. hundred. Well, they we, normally, sorry, it's been so long since I've played one of their sure. games. You know, they'll put out the main box and there'll be like a mini army book in the back of the main rule book for every sort of True. Faction. And their and their starter boxes are admittedly very good value, even when compared to other manufacturers' miniatures. So I highly doubt I, I will go back to this, but mm-hmm. it, it will be nice to watch and see and 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 look at the pretty pictures again. Chip the Third might be enthusiastic. He's, he's one true. of those uh, old world stalwarts. It's true. On the topic of plastic, little plastic trains. We're big fans of the Little Plastic Train Company and their Little Plastic Trains. We've been talking about this in Pledge of Indifference, but I wanted to give it a shout out to the made show. They are currently crowdfunding Wave 2 of their deluxe board game train sets. And honestly, these are adorable and beautiful all at the same time. If you have any interest whatsoever in blinged out train components and you are not familiar with the works of the Little Plastic Train Company, I highly encourage you to go on Kickstarter and take a gander at the pictures of the Little Plastic Trains of Wave 2. And you can get the Wave 1 stuff at the same time. You can also get the Wave 1 stuff at the same time, because Kickstarter is not a store. Not 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 even remotely. No. a store. No. I just want to make sure we said that, right? We did. Okay. We were very clear. Good stuff. Finally, for me... I am a longtime fan of Duel of Ages, a somewhat obscure two-player skirmish system that I have not been able to play recently because anytime I mention it, people like Walker roll their eyes, despite never having tried it. I played it. You've played Duel of Ages? I've played Duel of Ages. I don't believe you. Once long, long ago. Yeah, have you played the second edition? No. Well then. <laughs> I will claim it as a win. Uh, <laughs> anyway, arguably the third edition is coming out on crowdfunding soon called World Spanner Factions, but it is a considerable redevelopment of the system. And I think it is, it appears to be, from what I've read from designer diaries and developer diaries, more different from second than second was to the first. But it's still being designed by Brett G. Morrell and it is still in the World Spanner universe. And, uh,. Am I a sucker for buying basically the same system three times? Probably, but I'm good for a third go-round. World Spanner Factions is going to be on Kickstarter soon, and Duel of Ages is basically a two-player elaborate skirmishy game that involves characters from all ages uh, duking it out, but it's more than just combat. There are also objectives that you need to pursue, and it's got a somewhat interesting resolution system, and I've always found it engaging. So You could call it Advanced Heroescape. In a way, right? So it's like that all, you know, different I guess. units from all sorts of different worlds. And oh, thematically, things. yes, yeah. 100%. Absolutely. Sorry. I, w- I was thinking, I w- naturally, it's my my prejudices, my priors. I was naturally thinking mechanically. And, no. But no, you're no, right. Thematically, either. absolutely, it is advanced heroescape. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. And now on to the topic. Now, we're running a little bit late, Walker. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, which is actually kind of okay in this instance, yeah. because a lot of this is a redo of a topic we did before called Playing for Second. But the thing is, is that new examples and new instances have come to light, making me curious about this anew. So would you mind, Walker, if we uh, started with a, a particular question that I've been asking a number of people, and I, I'm very curious to hear your answer. I'm also curious to hear the listener's answer. 
and it's framed under Quo Vadis or Zu Vadis. All right, so let's 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 put this out. So, Absolutely. So we have uh, we have a guild on Board Game Geek. So you can if you write us write to us there. We have our Facebook page. So send us some messages, and then we can get a nice. Uh, Conversation nice section, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in Quo Vadis and in Zuvatis, I reread the original rules to Quo Vadis just to make sure that, that it hadn't been expressed differently. The idea is, is that in order to win, you need to do two things. You need to get to the final chamber, and you need to have the most points. Here is my question to you, Walker. Which would you rather? Would you rather have a lot of points, possibly even the most, and not make it to the last chamber? Or would you rather make it to the last chamber and have not nearly as many points as the person who made it to the chamber and had more points. I think making it to the chamber, because it wouldn't matter how many points you had. If if, if making it to the chamber, because you might as well have zero points, because those points don't matter unless you have a figure in the final chamber. I agree with you. I'm in the same position, but another person might say, and I've heard other people say, well, but if you don't have the points, getting to the chamber didn't matter, right? It depends on which one you order. I don't think there's a right answer. I really don't. And the problem is, what well, problem? This isn't even a problem. The interesting thing is, in the context of a negotiation game, you have to figure out what a given player is going to be motivated by in order to successfully negotiate with them. This came to a head, actually, because in a game of Zuvatis in which you were not involved, someone was one step away from getting into the, the chamber, and them getting there would cause the game immediately to end. If they didn't do it, the odds of their opponent getting there for the first time was very, very high. And I was negotiating with this individual, trying to get them to pay me to advance them into the, 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 the final chamber, and their response was, what do I care about getting to the chamber? I'm not going to have enough points to win. The implication was, it is in my interest to let the game continue because some miracle might happen and I might get the necessary points and then might get into the chamber. He acknowledged that this was a, a remote possibility. And I realized that I had no ability to convince him to think about the world the way I did. And I, I just found it very, very illuminating. Like a lot of people construe of wins in different ways. It's true. That's why when we did this topic, it's it's going to be different for for everyone in how they approach gaming. Yeah. Sometimes rulebooks try to tell you how to think about these different wins. I'll never forget the Archipelago, the Christophe Bélanger game that's very, very fragile, and specifically says, if the game ends in a revolt, you all lose. If the game goes the distance, you're all winners, but the person with the most points is the especialist winner. Some people, and what's what's interesting, and I don't, I don't this I'm less willing to say there's no right or wrong answer here, but some people read that and refuse to take the game on those terms, right? A lot of people read that and say, no, 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 no. There's only, it's the Ricky Bobby uh, view of the world. If you're not first, you're last. Ain't no difference between second place and last place. Ain't no difference between losing because of a revolt and losing because somebody else got points for you. Not only is this going to be different from, from player to player, but it's going to be different in each and every game yeah. as well. Because my example would be a poker game, a cash poker game, mm. where you're allowed to leave wherever you want. So coming second in there is just fine. Yeah. Right? You've won a whole bunch of money. Sure, you might be a couple hundred less than the person who's about to walk away with you know, the rest of it. But it's like, I, I'm perfectly fine yep. walking away with several hundred dollars. Some people, though, uh, some people have internalized relative gains so strongly, they might not even believe that. I'm with you. I agree with you that far more people would then get on board with the idea that there can be multiple winners, quote unquote, in a, in, in a poker game. 
uh, but some people would balk. Uh, it's weird. And I don't view the world through that lens, but I do find it fascinating to hear people talk about how they view it that way. Like some of the examples we've seen is when, when there's, there's an obvious clear winner and no one else can come close. Right. Why continue the game? Yes. And indeed we had someone on the guild. I don't want to call them out by name who specifically said in those contexts, the game becomes degenerate and the appropriate recourse in that instance is to stop the game. And what this illustrates, what I find most most striking about this is that it illustrates, again, the Ricky Bobby idea. If you're not first, you're last. If you can't win, then you cannot engage meaningfully with the structures that the game has established. And to be fair to this viewpoint, this is not a viewpoint I have. This is not a viewpoint that, that uh, motivates me. And it's not a viewpoint that motivates anybody we play games with. But... To be entirely fair, strictly speaking, if you look at the rules, and I just said I want to let the rules establish the victory conditions and establish what a win looks like, and I want to take Archipelago seriously when it tells me that there are two different kinds of losses and one loss is worse than the other, games almost never talk about second, third, fourth, and fifth place at the end of the game. They almost exclusively said whoever has the most of whatever is the winner, and then stop and yes. don't say anything about anything else. And to be entirely fair, if you construe that literally, that does imply a Ricky Bobby view of the world. It's it's if you look in the rule book, sure. No, I know. I, I again, this is not my viewpoint, but I'm just trying to motivate this viewpoint and 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 try to understand in an empathetic way where this viewpoint can come from. Because in other games, I am willing to let the rule book tell me how to evaluate different endgame states. I can see leaning towards this point of view, like if you play the same game with the same group of people over and over again. Yeah. Right. And you started getting into some sort of system mastery and, yep. and, and, but even then I, I have too much fun moving the levers yep. like for me personally. I could never see, Oh, it's like, well, it's obvious this person's going to win. Then why continue? Yeah. Continue because I enjoy moving the levers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be fair, I might, again, I might be closer to this view of the world if we played with people that started playing randomly when they knew they couldn't win, right? When when we're at a gr our core group of gamers and most of the other extended group, like I'm talking like 40, 50 people easily in the co broader context of Kingston. I've never encountered anyone like this, but I have encountered people like this elsewhere. If they think they can't win, they cease trying to pursue their own interest and just starts doing stuff just because. Because, yeah, because what they, chaos for fun. Precisely, precisely. And that is, between that and having the game be called because there's an automatic degeneracy, I would much rather prefer the latter. It's just I don't play with people that, that do random things for the sake of randomness. Like, because when you talk, just to be clear, you talk about all the time, whether you think you can win or not, frequently what you do is you establish some sort of other goal. Like, I want to get one of every color, or I yeah. want to do, or whatever. The moral victory. Yeah, yeah, the moral victory. The Walker moral victory. But the Walker moral victory is always tied to the game's victory condition. It's never arbitrary. Yes. It's like, I'm going to get the prettiest collection. No, it's it's like, it's tied to the victory points or, or the, the normal victory condition of the game. It's just, you find your way to have achievable goals in any context. I think that's admirable. Except I'm playing innovation. And, <laughs> sorry, that was unfair. That was uncharitable. Uncharitable moving on. Uh, but yeah, chaos agents, if you play with chaos agents, I could completely understand this idea about degeneracy. So my final line is I'm not saying this is the final conversation, but I want to get to well, this actually, just we're all, so we can, so we can talk. We're an about hour and a half into the episode. So, Walker. <laughs> so it's like, 
So is the final goal to stand up at the end and say, look, look, I just won at roly pushy cardboard. Like, is, is that the goal that, that you're going for at this night of gaming to stand up and say, I'm the winner? Or is your goal to spend meaning, meaningful, interactive time with your friends? So like, what, mm. what is your goal? Okay. First of all, I think that's a false dichotomy because I enjoy games even when playing with people I don't like very often because I'm engaging with systems sometimes. Right. So I, I don't want to wreck it. It's like, well, either you're being social or you're being a competitive douche, especially because on, uh, on the, I don't think either of those two arms is accurate. Not that that's what you said, but I'm exaggerating. Yes. It's also worth noting. I, I didn't exaggerate. So, you know, why? why <laughs> Touche. I will say this also in defense of, uh, of this view, there are views about what constitutes victory and discussions about what constitutes victory, and different paradigms about what victory looks like and what you should do to pursue those 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 goals. And those topics I find fascinating, and I'm willing to have those discussions ad nauseum in many cases. I've been asking everybody about this Colvada uh, thing because I find the answer fascinating. That doesn't mean I get super attached to winning and I get super competitive. It means I'm interested by the structure. In very much the same way that I'm interested in, you know, the auction structure of an auction game or the bidding structure of, of of whatever, that I said the same thing twice. It doesn't mean I'm a competitive. I'm competitively minded just because I find competition interesting, right? And so these people that have the Ricky Bobby view, I think it's a little unfair to necessarily not that you did to necessarily assume that they are these hyper competitive people that get really burned up if they don't win and get all super triumphant when they do. And I, you can also bring it in the completely other direction where someone calls a victory before the game even starts because, A, they found time to get to a gaming night. <laughs> it's true. B, they did all the work necessary to get the time off. It's true. C, the people showed up and, and there's a game out there yep. and, and they have a place to sit down and play that game. Yep. They've won in it's their true. head. No, no, you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and as somebody who's going to be trying to get a game of Voidfall together... <laughs> <laughs> I can be very, very sympathetic to that viewpoint. To say nothing of my 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 frequent quixotic attempts to get a game of successors together. <laughs> well, I think we're clear on Voidfall. It says best at three, so we're good. <laughs> <coughs> well, there's a lot more that could be said. I think what we'll do is save it for future discussions because we've been yammering at you for... A very long time and you can have too much of a good thing so we're going to call it for this week thank you very very much for joining us for so very wrong about games we appreciate your having spent the time with us we look forward to seeing you again soon you can find all our contact information at so wronggames.com slash contact we read everything you send us please do take care peace you've been listening to so very wrong about games produced by michael walker and edited by mark bigney Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.